delighted to be here this morning again. We do ask that you continue to pray for us uh, for the short time that we stand before you. Um, most of you were at uh, Liberty a couple of weeks ago, uh, and you heard Brother Joe Nettles' uh, wonderful sermon on the rainbow. Um, so <clears throat> we shared some thoughts with Liberty uh, in the afternoon service after y'all had abandoned your pastor who was going to be there that afternoon. Uh, I guess you hear him enough, but no, I'm just kidding. Anyways, we shared some thoughts with them uh, that afternoon. We want to share some of those thoughts now with you and then kind of go into some other things uh, that kind of branch off from that. So uh, by way of introduction then, or sort of a, a scripture to just kind of begin with, uh, Genesis chapter 9, uh, beginning with the uh, eighth verse, the Bible says that God spoke unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth, and I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood, neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. We'll just kind of stop right there because we could continue reading. But um, how many times did we read the word covenant? Oh, about five. Six, seven, whole bunch of times, right? Covenant to promise, right? Its promise was he will no more flood the earth. So <clears throat> for those of you panicking through, what is it called now? Climate change, global warming, the ice caps are going to melt, and the earth's going to be flooded and everybody's going to die. Well, you're lying. Because God says, I'm not going to flood the earth anymore. <clears throat> now, the global warming thing, that might be a possibility. Because when he sets it on fire one day, this globe will warm. But he's going to be the one to set it. But nonetheless, there's a covenant, there's a promise that was made. And we're seeing it through the rainbow that is in the heavens. Now... Our thoughts that we'd like to share with you, number one, is if you have even a third grade education, you know that the rainbow that's in the heavens is made of seven colors. You know, Roy G. Biff, right? Red, orange, yellow, blue, green, indigo, violet. Did I say that right? Roy G. Biff? There's seven colors in God's rainbow. Now, from those seven colors, there's an endless amount of colors that can be created from that, but we know that there are seven. It is not a coincidence that God's rainbow has seven colors and this pride rainbow stolen by the Sodomites has only six in it. Some of you with me, some of you not, some of you not aware of that. You got your little, little electronic devices there, Google it. Google your pride flag. Let, let Google know you're searching to be proud. Uh, there's six colors in it. It's not a coincidence that that which man identifies himself with is six and that which God identifies himself with is seven. Yeah. If you know anything about numerology, the study of numbers in the Bible, the number of seven is the number of completeness. And the number of six is incomplete. That's, that's the way the Bible kind of lays that out. Um, seven days in a complete week. There are seven notes in a complete music scale. There are six identified with 
the mark of the beast, the number of man. And, I mean, you can just really kind of look at this and see how the world is, is progressing in its downward spiral away from God. Uh, they are accomplishing very little, really. Because the markers that they have set for themselves and for this nation and for the world as a whole, they really can't see the end of where they are going. They don't really realize the destruction that we are headed to. Uh, you know, I told them yesterday at Five Mile a little bit. When I, when I was a child, 30 years ago, when I, well, I, was, I said 30 years ago when I was a teenager. <laughs> it's not quite right, but uh, <clears throat> who's counting, right? Uh, when I was a teenager growing up, if we wanted to, to have a talent show and play a practical joke, on just the crowd that was gathered there or, or anybody watching, if we had a beauty pageant, the practical joke that we would play was we would put the most beautiful girls in the school up on the stage, but we would crown the ugliest guy. And that would be our practical joke. Everybody would laugh, and that's just the way it would be. That's not a joke anymore. That is a reality in many places where we have asked the most beautiful women to step aside so we can crown the ugliest dude among us. They are in a complete, well, a complete downfall that is an incomplete process, really. God says, my covenant that I will establish with you is seen through this rainbow. And it's not a coincidence that that which God has promised to be a hope to us has been stolen by the world, used to justify their wickedness, and that it is an incomplete symbol in and of itself. But so what we want to look at this morning is um, the number of sevens that appear in scriptures specifically associated ultimately with the Lord Jesus Christ. But the number of seven, it appears quite frequently in the scriptures. Now, before we do this, it is very possible uh, to take something that is in the Bible and make something out of nothing. You hear me? It is very possible to take something in the Bible and make something out of nothing. Especially if that something in the Bible does not directly say, this is that. But on the other hand, there are some things that we need to dig out of the Scriptures, that they're there for a purpose. They're there for a reason. So, for example, in Genesis chapter uh, 21, when Abraham is uh, discussing with Abimelech uh, that his men have taken a well that he dug out for his people, he tells Abimelech, your people have taken that, your princes have taken my well from me, and I want it back. And here, uh, well, let's say, let's look at uh, verse 25 of Genesis 21. And Abraham reproved Abimelech because of the well of water which Abimelech's servants had violently taken away. And Abimelech said, I want not who had done this thing, Neither didst thou tell me, neither yet heard I of it, but today. And listen to this. Abraham took sheep and oxen, gave them to Abimelech, and both of them made a covenant. Okay, so we've got that word again. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. No, okay, now we've got this word seven. We've got a covenant, and we've got seven lambs. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, What mean these seven ewe lambs which thou hast set by themselves? And he said, For these seven ewe lambs shalt thou take of my hand, that they may be a witness unto me that I have digged this well. Wherefore he called that place Beersheba, because there they swear both of them. So, alright, now wait a minute. We, we're getting into this, right? Beersheba means a well of oath or well of seven. So it can be well said, 
that the term seven is often found with completeness or a covenant or a contract, something to do with the honor of God. Can we say that? So we can move forward on this and realize that there are things that may appear accidentally in the Bible, which I don't think things appear accidentally, but for the sake of argument. But I also think that there are things that appear on purpose, like the seven churches in Revelation. John wrote letters to the seven churches of Revelation. In the hand of Christ were the seven golden candlesticks and the seven, char- uh, seven stars of the churches in Revelation. That, that's to tell us there, there's something to that. That's not an accident. There's something important about this. Jesus Christ ascends back to heaven. Revelation 5. That John says that he sees seated upon a throne the ancient of days. And in his hand there is a book in his hand. Sealed with seven seals. And Jesus Christ comes before him that sits on the throne. And takes that book out of his hand. And one by one by one breaks those seven seals unfolds essentially the remainder of human history. The remainder of human history is protected by God. It's set in stone by God. You can be assured that God is on your side because you've read it in His book and His book is a book that is in His hand commanded by Him. But also think about this. In Psalm chapter 12, I'd like for you to notice Psalm chapter 12 and verse 6. Psalm 12 and verse 6. Be careful when people start throwing off on this book and telling you that this book is not a proper translation or something better should be written or it really doesn't matter, this, that, and the other. How do you know it's true? It's gone through the hands of many men down through the years. If this book had just gone through the hands of men, then yeah, you might could worry about it. But if this book has gone through the hands of men under the direction of God, that's something completely different. Notice nobody ever really argues about the history of the Roman Empire. They don't really argue about the history of Native Americans. Yet none of us were there. Scientists fully accept, many scientists fully accept the theory of evolution. None of them were there. But they want to throw off in the Bible because none of us were there. Well, God was there. And listen to what Psalms 12 and verse 6 says. He says that the words of the Lord are pure words. Now, I'd like for you to notice here that language means something, right? He does not say the word of the Lord is a pure word. Like this book, we call this the Word of God. It doesn't say that the Word is a pure Word. It says the words in the Word are pure words. See that? Not just this book as a whole, but every word in this book are pure words. And notice what it says here. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified... Seven times. There's that word again. God created the world in six days. And on the seventh day he rested. It's told to us in Genesis chapter 2. By that example he tells Israel in Exodus 20. I worked six days. And I rested the seventh. You then are to work six days. And you are to rest the seventh. That's that's just good for all of us to understand that there are six days in the week that we ought to work. And we ought to take at least one day to rest. Now, whether that's a specific day or not is a completely different subject. But what do most of us do? 
most of us wear ourselves out Monday through Friday working. And then Saturday we say, well, that's the only day for me to get anything done around the house. And we destroy ourselves on Saturday so that when we come to church on Sunday, we're half asleep. Right? What if you, what if, what if you rested on Saturday and just kind of chilled out around the house? And then on Sunday when you got home, you did all your work on Sunday afternoon. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, you drifted into Seventh-day Adventist. No, I'm, I'm just asking a simple question. What if we rested still on Saturday, just prepared ourselves for Sunday, and then after church on Sunday, we kill ourselves? Physically, I mean, not, not, you know, you know what I'm saying. I don't know what I'm saying. The, the point is, though, we all need a day of rest. We need a time to slow down, settle down, calm down, breathe a little bit. Um, God rested. Israel was to rest. Uh, his word is purified seven times. I'd like for you to also notice here in the Old Testament, that we want to establish a few things in the Old Testament and then just kind of drag all that over into the New Testament because really... Um, you can put too much emphasis on numbers in the Bible. Like we said, you can make something out of nothing. But the question I have is, if sometimes these numbers don't mean something, then God sure wasted a lot of time conditioning Israel to do things. If these numbers don't mean something, then God sure wasted a lot of times doing things to Israel and conditioning them in certain ways. So, for example, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 15. And Deuteronomy 15 and verse 1. Deuteronomy 15 and verse 1 says, At the end of every seven years, thou shalt make a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor that lendeth ought unto his neighbor shall release it. He shall not exact it of his neighbor or of his brother, because it is called the Lord's release. So at the end of seven years, whatever you owe on your credit card is just wiped out. Amen. Huh? Uh, no more 15-year, 30-year mortgages on your houses? Wow. Sure it's quiet in here, isn't it? Y'all ever thought about that? This, this, but, but this is not what I said. God said this. That would at least be worth trying. And then in verse 12 of this same chapter, he says, And if thy brother, an Hebrew man, or an Hebrew woman, be sold unto thee, and serve thee six years, then in the seventh year thou shalt let him go free from thee. So indentured servitude, where if a man was indebted to another person and he, he just absolutely could not pay that debt, he could become an indentured servitude of his own free will. He could serve that man for six years, but in the seventh year, he's free to go. Boy, what if we tried? What if we just tried this? That'd be an interesting thing. But what do you see here? You see, you see exoneration. You see... Uh, Relief amongst people connected to what? Seven years, right? Here's an interesting one. Second Kings. In Second Kings chapter 5, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, alludes to this in Luke chapter 4 when he says that in the days uh, of Elisha, um, there were many lepers in the land, but none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Now, that's a, that's a beautiful statement that he uses re referencing here to 2 Kings 5. He doesn't say Naaman the Israelite. He doesn't say Naaman the friend of God. He says Naaman the Syrian, the enemy of Israel, was cleansed. And his cleansing is recorded in 2 Kings 5 in that he comes to Elisha and Elisha sends his little uh, servant boy out and he says, here's what you need to do. You need to go down to this river here in Jordan and you need to dip. It is told us here in 2 Kings chapter 5 about starting with verse 9 or so. Um, 
tells him in verse 11, Naaman was, let's see, verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger on him saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. What you want to do is you need to go down there and you need to dip in Jordan's river seven times. He says, this is ridiculous. This muddy, nasty, dirty river. You need to go down there. I've got, there are better rivers up here where I came from. If you wanted me to just jump in a pool, I could have done that at my house. And what's interesting is he has a little servant boy that's, that's with him. And his servant says to him in verse 13, uh, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather than when he saith to thee, wash and be clean. You ever notice how something that is just very, very simple to human beings seems to be the most impossible thing to do? They want to make it just as complicated as they possibly can. Well, Nathan, uh, Naaman had some sense about himself. He went, he dipped himself seven times, he came out clean. Um, <clears throat> I think there was also a change in Naaman's life. I think something happened to him. And I'd like to read a verse here uh, that's not very biblical. What? Huh? Let's just read this. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm just going to read this and drop it with you a little bit. Leave some consideration and see what we might can come up with this. Verse 17. Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules burdens of earth for thy servant? will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. So gives us an idea that before this he was a practicing pagan. Listen to this next verse. Verse 18. In this thing the Lord pardoned thy servant, not only what I did, but that when my master goeth into the house of Remen to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand... And I bow myself in the house of Remen. When I bow down myself in the house of Remen, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. That to me is a, is a fantastic verse. You say, what does that mean? Well, let me just put it to you this way. There's some of y'all in corporate America right now who are subject to the woke garbage that is infecting society around us and you've got to sit in meetings and listen to garbage spewed out by people who really have no idea what they're talking about but because it's 10 o'clock and it's you know conference time you got to go to the meeting right so you're sitting in there like the rest of them you look just like them but you're not in there for the same purpose god forgive me that because it's 10 o'clock I'm obligated to participate in this stupid mess that I'm in. Because I'm not in there for the same reason they are. How's that for you? Is that okay? I just give you that one free and you just go home with that one. Um, exoneration and healing, though, are these two things that we're looking at in Deuteronomy and in 2 Kings 5. Now, take every bit of that and bring it all the way over to the Gospel of Matthew the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 18. Peter comes before Jesus in Matthew 18. We read on this just a couple of weeks ago. And he says in verse uh, 21, Peter said to him, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Four hundred and ninety times. In other words, we as preachers use a lot of words to try and talk about what we try and convey what we're talking about, but really the words that should be said here is that forgiveness is not a numerical thing. It's a whole thing. You give, you're forgiving them completely and wholly is what, is what Jesus is trying to get across to Peter. 490 times. So this is, where, this is where we kind of get the issue of if numbers don't mean anything, God spent a lot of time conditioning Israel because when you come to the number, when you come to 490, what do you think about? I don't know. 
It says seven times 70, right? Do you think about the 70 weeks of Daniel? That when Daniel prophesied 70 weeks, they were, uh, oh, how do you say this? There's seven days in a week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. But have you ever used the phrase, oh, I ain't seen you in a, in a month of Sundays? You ever heard anybody say that? Well, what would a month of Sundays be? A month of Sundays would be about 30 Sundays, right? A month, a month has 30 days in it, Sundays. That's a long time, though. That's seven times 30 is 210 days. Y'all follow me down this rabbit hole we're going here? Because there's, there's a whole lot of thinking sometimes that you got to do that I ain't real good at. The 70 weeks of Daniel, when you map them out, really are 490 years. Because you can have a week of days, seven days. You can have a week of weeks, which is seven weeks. Y'all following this? Mm -hmm. So forth and so on, depending on how God is talking to them. So in Daniel, the coming of Messiah was prophesied at what 490 years. Israel was led away into Babylonian captivity. You remember this? Nebuchadnezzar comes in, ransacks, Babylon, uh, ransacks Jerusalem, takes Israel away into captivity for how long? Seventy years? Why was it seventy years? Because God had told them that you can till your fields for six years, but on the seventh year, you leave that plot of ground untilled. He wanted his... Seventh year land rest. Right? Well, they said they just plowed right on through. For 490 years, they did this. And at the end of 490 years, God says, I'm getting my rest. You're going away into captivity for 70 years. And my land's going to rest for 70 years. Which if you'd have done it like I told you to to start with, you wouldn't have to do it all at one time. It'd been little by little by little with me on that so when Jesus tells Peter 490 I wonder if he's thinking about Babylonian captivity I wonder if he's thinking about Daniel's weeks of 70 I wonder if that's what's in his mind because if these numbers don't mean things then God wasted a lot of time conditioning us to think this way so at any rate when it comes then let's just drag all this into the New Testament um that, that light that comes from heaven. That light that comes from the sun itself. Hits a prism. And then out of that prism comes seven colors, right? That's the way it kind of spreads out. When it comes to the number of seven, as it is applied to the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to be amazed at this. I hope you'll be amazed at this. There are seven sayings on the cross. There are seven I am statements of Jesus Christ. There are seven miracles in the Gospel of John. There are seven healings in the Bible associated with Jesus Christ and the Sabbath day. Let's notice this. Matthew chapter 12. We're in Matthew right now. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 12 and begin reading. With the 8th verse. Matthew chapter 12 verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. And when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that they might accuse him? And he saith unto them, Which man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep? And if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. Then saith he to the man, stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it forth and it was restored whole like the other. It's amazing how people want to twist and turn the scriptures. 
You're not talking about plowing a field on that Sabbath day. We're not talking about going out and harvesting. We're talking about an individual being delivered from a burden on the Sabbath day. They'd rather keep the person in bondage than to see deliverance. But what happens here? Jesus heals a man when? On the Sabbath day. Mark chapter 1. Let's just kind of go through this best we can. Mark chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, well, you start in verse 21. And it says, They went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day, He entered into the synagogue and taught. Verse 23, And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Out there come to destroy us. I know thee whom thou art, the Holy One of God. Ooh, wow. Here's a man possessed with a devil. And he has given more praise to Jesus than those Sadducees or Pharisees ever thought about doing. When? On the Sabbath day. What happens to this man on the Sabbath day? He's healed. Hint, hint. We said earlier that Jesus Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. Hint, hint. That the Sabbath in our time is not necessarily a day of the week. The Sabbath in our time is the person of Christ. He is our rest. He is our Sabbath day. He is the one who is the healer in our day. Let's go on. Chapter 1, verse 29 and forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever. In case, in case your son-in-law does not care about you, there's one greater than your son-in-law. Jesus Christ cared about Peter's mother-in-law. Isn't that wonderful? I care. As a matter of fact, you know, I've told my wife plenty of times, look, I love your family more than I love my own. I care more about your mother-in-law than I do my own. Just let this set in for a minute. Oh, ha ha. That's, you know. Anybody got a couch that they're not using? I might need. Anyways, here is Jesus healing who? Peter's mother-in-law. Um, let's pause just there for a minute. Who did he heal? Peter's mother-in-law. In order for Peter to have a mother-in-law, he'd have to have a wife, right? Peter's married, right? Peter's the first pope of Rome. What's he doing being married? How simple the Bible is. His laws and things that people impose upon other people are not biblical. Not biblical for your priest to be unmarried. You've got a lot of problems that you have, have, have created defying God's Word. And it's amazing, it's amazing that people cannot see the problems they create by defying God's Word. They don't think that defying God's Word is the problem. They're just not trying hard enough is what it is. Socialism didn't work because you didn't do it right. You didn't try hard enough. You didn't do it my way. No, socialism didn't work because it doesn't work. Socialism didn't work. Communism doesn't work. Marxism doesn't work because it's not biblical. It's not God's way. Ah, by the way, I'll just jump off that. Uh, so we've got, what have we got here? That's three. Number four in Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. We find again the Sabbath day. Luke 13 verse 10. And as he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, 
Behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. So all the self-help books that she could have read, all the positive mentality she could have had, everything that she could have done to and for herself was not going to work. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. You know, I, there's, I, just, I can think of a lot of people right now that God just needs to straighten out right now. Few of y'all in here. Maybe me, myself, once in a while. Notice what is said here. The ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day. And said unto the people, there are six days in which men ought to work. And them therefore come and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Now hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. You're only at the synagogue on the Sabbath. How are you going to come to the synagogue? Nobody else is there. They had to come to the synagogue when Jesus was there. Right? The Lord answered, verse 15, Thou hypocrite. And then he tells the same story again about loosing your ox or your ass and finding this, that, and the other. He says, but in verse 16, Ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound? Who bound this woman? What's the scripture say? Satan bound this woman. Now what does that mean? Oh, that's a very good question. I'm glad I'm not asking that. What, what, what does that mean? Go home and think about that. That a lot of the problems that you see in the world are in fact spiritual problems. It's not because your brain is wonky. It's not because you've got some mental defect. It's not because your equilibrium is off. Some of the problems that people have in life are spiritual problems. They are under attack by the devil. And they cannot positively think themselves out of it. That's, you know, that's just Bible, right? He says she ought to have been loosed on the Sabbath day rather than to have continued to be afflicted. Uh, it's, it's my conspiracy theory, rambling, redneck, crock-pottedness who thinks that possibly... There are some people in America or maybe in the world as a whole who don't want cancer to be cured. It's just my supposition that there's a whole lot more money to be made in the remedy than in the cure. Maybe, maybe not. Well, because, you know, when you start hearing world leaders say, that, that climate is a problem, global warming is a problem, we all need to drive electric vehicles, y'all need to drive electric vehicles, stay at home, and decrease the population. What? But when you, when you start hearing world leaders talk about stuff like that, they're not really looking for a solution. They're just looking to get rid of you. And And... How many times do you look out in the world around us and somebody's complaining about what's going on and they say the people that need to fix the problem are you? You know, you go to the grocery store. They're complaining about plastic bags, right? So I'm, I'm going to go to the deli and I'm going to get half a pound of ham in a plastic sack. And then I'm going to go to the produce and I'm going to get pineapple and I'm going to get tomatoes and whatever else in a little plastic container. And I'm going to go to the ice cream aisle and I'm going to get a big tub of ice cream in a plastic bucket. And I'm going to get my milk in a plastic jug. But I can't go to the register and get a plastic sack because they're killing the world. Something's rotten in the state of Denmark, y'all. Even rednecks from Alabama can figure that out, right? Ah, anyways. Luke 14, verse 1. Came to pass 
as they went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath. That they watched him. They watched Jesus. And what happens? There comes in in this, in this situation a man with the droopsy. man has a problem. Now, what, what exactly is the droopsy? Not quite sure. Didn't bother to study that out. But it's a severe enough problem that he has to go to Jesus. And again, Jesus heals on the Sabbath day. And again, Jesus tells a story about dealing with an animal. Yeah, I'm kind, I'm kind of getting tired of this. I'm kind of getting tired of Jesus having to tell us stories about animals to get us to care about people. How about y'all? If you have an animal, you are not a dog parent. You are a dog owner. You do not give birth to the dog. You do not give birth to the cat. You may identify as a cat, but you're not a cat. And you did not give birth to the animal. Your children may act like animals, but they are not animals. But Jesus has got to constantly give us stories about animals to get us to care about human beings. In John chapter 5, he comes to a place called uh, Bethesda. has a pool there in John chapter 5. And at a certain time, an angel would come down and trouble the waters. And whosoever could crawl into the water was made whole of whatever affliction they had. There's a man there that uh, been in this state quite a long time. He's tried to crawl down to the water, tried to get there, but... Just before he gets there, he says that somebody steps in before me and they're made whole. Aren't human beings so delightful? Aren't they so kind and compassionate? Again, on the Sabbath day, they take up stones to stone him because he did it on the Sabbath day. The last person that was healed on the Sabbath day is found in John chapter 9. It was a man born blind. When they had asked who was born blind... Or, or who sinned that this man was born blind, he or his parents? What kind of ridiculous statement is that? Well, it's a pretty reasonable one if you believe in reincarnation. But Jesus says it's a ridiculous statement. Nobody sinned that he was born blind. He was born blind that the power of God may be demonstrated in this. Jesus healed him on the Sabbath day. And because the man would not recount against Christ, they threw him out of the synagogue. And on the outside of the synagogue, there sits this man on the steps, and up comes Jesus, unbeknownst to the man, because, see, the man had never seen him, because he was blind the last time he saw him. He was blind the last time he was interacted with him. But the two outcasts outside the synagogue are the man who would not deny Christ and Christ Himself. Seven people healed by Jesus on the Sabbath day. Seven's pretty important, isn't it? Jesus said to uh, His disciples, in John chapter 6, verse 35, He says, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 8, and verse 12, He says, I am the light of the world. John chapter 10, verse 9, he says, I am the door of the sheep. In chapter 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. John chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14, 26, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, verse 1, he says, I am the true vine. There are seven I am statements of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of them may not mean anything to you until you understand that they are, over, they are all under the heading of John 8.58 when he said, Before Abraham was, I am. Not before Abraham was, I was, but before Abraham was, I am. What does that I am mean? That shaft of light 
You know, that comes down from heaven and hits that prism and spreads into seven different colors. That God Himself came down in the person of Jesus Christ and spread Himself into the bread of life, the water of life, the way, the truth, and the life, the resurrection and the life, the good shepherd, the door of the sheep, the true vine. He's everything you've ever needed and more. There are seven miracles also that are recorded in the Gospel of John. See, I gave you those seven IMs in the Gospel of John. There are seven miracles recorded in the Gospel of John. I gave you two of them with the blind man and the man at the pool. First miracle Jesus ever did was in John chapter uh, 2, turning water into wine. First miracle he ever, ever did. It's recorded in Scripture. Uh, in John 4, there was a nobleman that come to him and said, My son is sick. Please heal my son. And he cleanses him, not in his presence, but in this instance, Jesus heals him from afar off. John 5 was the man at the pool. John 6, we have him feeding 5,000 with a few loaves and a few fishes. And after he sends the multitude away, in John 6, he tells his disciples, get into a boat, go out in the middle of the river and drown, and I'll be there in a minute. Not really. That's what they heard, but that's not what he said. You ever heard what somebody didn't say? Uh, are you married? Then you've heard a lot of things they didn't say. Right? What are y'all arguing about? Well, he said this. No, he didn't say that. She said, no, she didn't say that. Jesus said... Get in a boat, go to the other side. He goes into a mountain to pray by himself. And in the fourth watch, fourth watch of the night, as the disciples are out there rowing and toiling in their rowing, and the weather is beating against them and the storms are beating against them, we have this miracle of him coming and walking on the water to them. Then we gave you the miracle of healing the man born blind in John 11 uh, or John 9. And then we have the miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus in John 11. Seven miracles by Jesus in the Gospel of John. Seven I am's of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Wait a minute. Why the Gospel of John? I think it has to do with this. That, that the four Gospels present... Each of the four Gospels present a different aspect of the life of Christ. They're not complete aspects, but they're a different aspect of the life of Christ. Matthew presents him as a king. Mark presents him as a servant. Luke presents him as the great physician and as, as a man. But John goes far above that. John doesn't start with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, that he was a begotten of this person uh, you know, through Abraham or backwards to Adam. You know, Matthew goes, Matthew goes forward through Abraham and Luke goes backwards to Adam. Mark doesn't have a genealogy because nobody cares where a servant came from. They just care what you're doing right now. But in John, he begins, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, he says, the, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He says, this being is something you ain't never seen before. He's not a man like us. He looks like us. He's going to act like us. On the outside, he looks exactly like us. But on the inside of this individual, there is something you ain't never seen before. The glory of God inhabits this person. So he gives them seven I am's, seven miracles, seven healings. If the term seven is a completeness, then John is laying before his Jewish readers that Jesus Christ is the complete fulfillment of everything the Old Testament was talking about. Paul would say this. He, say, he would say that within Jesus Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The completeness of everything that God is 
was in Jesus Christ. He, he was a man who had the Spirit without measure. In other words, there's, there's no limit to the influence of the Spirit in his life. There's a limit to the Spirit of your life. You feel the Spirit a lot more at times than you do with others. There are times when you don't feel Him at all. And there are other times you feel Him you think, you know what, just another second of this and I might just step right into glory. You know, we, were, we were at, uh, where were we? Five Mile Church Friday for their, for their meeting. And I thought, boy, I think if we sing another song, we might just go right into heaven. I felt this you know, liberty last week. The singing was wonderful. Uh, when, when we went down for the, the constitution of the new church down at Zion, uh, Brother Ricky Harcrow, I, I thought, I tell you what, if he preaches any longer, he might just depart right now. It's just, you just feel like the Spirit is with you so abundantly. But with Jesus Christ, He had the Spirit without measure. There was no absence. Last thing I want to leave you with is there are seven statements that Jesus gave us on the cross. Uh, if you begin in uh, Luke 23, there's two of them. Uh, <clears throat> there's two of them here. Now, what I've told you today is not is by far not a complete list. There, there's nothing I've ever done that's been complete. Except sin. I've done that pretty good. But, I, but preach, I'm, just, I'm just trying to give you this to sort of whet your appetite. Say, hey, there's a lot more to this than we could possibly think of. But here in Luke 23, as Jesus is nailed to the cross, the very first thing that He says is found here in verse 34. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. He's addressing God on behalf of those who have nailed Him to the cross. Interesting. He then turns to somebody on the cross in uh, verse 43 of Luke 23. And he says to that thief on the cross, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. He then turns his attention to John 19. And he turns his attention to others around the cross. And in John 19, it says here in uh, verse 26, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. I, there's probably a whole lot of preaching in those three statements that I'm missing. There's probably a whole lot of preaching that I can't see. Because Jesus is dealing with, with earthly things right now. Dealing with the people that crucified Him. The people crucified with Him. And the people observing His crucifixion. Then the scene changes. The scene then goes to Matthew 27. And in Matthew 27, we have verse 46. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's actually a, a quotation from the Old Testament. It's a Psalm, I think Psalm 22 is where that's from. Psalm 22, 23, and 24, they're kind of, they're all uh, hand in hand, different aspects of, of Christ himself. But it, 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 nonetheless, here he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I may not have the best answer for that question, but I do know this. God has told us in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, through the pen of Paul, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. That we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. If he forsook Christ, that moment on the cross, he did so, so that he'll never forsake us. That our sins were laid on the person of Christ. And Christ 
paid for your sins and for my sins. That for that moment in time, if somebody had to be forsaken, wasn't you. See himself on the cross. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? John chapter 19. John 19, we have two statements here. In John 19 and verse 28, it says, And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now, they thought he was thirsty for earthly things. They could have been more wrong. Wrong, wronger. Couldn't have been more wrong. We as God's people, if we truly are hungry and thirsting in this life, we are not hungering and thirsting after earthly things. We are hungering and thirsting of the presence of God and the work of God and the moving of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus, therefore, verse 30, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. The very last thing then that he said at that point would be found in Luke 23. And verse 46, when he says here, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Those men didn't take his life. He could have stayed on the cross for all eternity. Because the Bible tells us that he cried with a loud voice. Did you catch that? I've never been crucified. Don't know anybody who has been crucified. Never seen anybody be crucified. Right? But from what we know about people telling us about this, this was a very torturous time. That most people on the cross, because of the afflictions done to them, died from suffocation. Did you know you're spread out like this? Just everything's just, it's all a mess. The whole process. The, the Romans tried to be just as cruel as they possibly could. And when you finally could no longer lift up yourself to breathe and sink back down, you would sink back down and eventually suffocate if you didn't bleed to death first. But it says that Jesus did not whisper. He didn't squeak out. It says he cried with a loud voice. He was completely in control. That baffles me. He was completely in control because he was the I am that he is the I am. This seven thing flows through the Bible. It's a mysterious thing. It's a grand thing. It's a great thing. And that, that rainbow that you begin with there in Genesis, one of the last times that you see it is over there in the book of Revelation, wherein John, the Apostle John says, I saw a throne, and around that throne, a rainbow. See, we, we think about this, this arch in the heavens that we see. That's only part of it. It's, it's really a complete circle. It's not an arch that has a beginning and an end. It's a circle with no beginning and no end. That surrounds the throne of God. Which, if you want to kind of contemplate that, you've got this covenant that surrounds the throne of God, made by God on your behalf. We have no choice as human beings but to mark time. That's what we do. But if you have a being who is not constrained by time, even though he does something in time, it's something he's always done. You get this? So though he made a covenant with Abraham or with Noah in time, that covenant is as old as God is. And if God has no beginning and no end, it is a complete circle. Mm -hmm. 
And the reality is, is that covenant surrounds the throne of God. And if that covenant can be broken, the whole throne of God can be torn down. Nobody's going to break into heaven and tear down the throne of our God. That covenant is sure, ordered in all points, and sure for you. And it is as complete as the God that made it. Thank you for your good and precious time this morning.